Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. This episode features a talk John Brandon gave at a Marketplace Network Forum in Boston. John Brandon recently was named Vice President International after serving as Vice President of the Americas and Asia Pacific for Apple Incorporated since June 2001. Prior to joining Apple, he was President and Chief Executive Officer for Academic Systems, an educational content company. Also, John spent 10 years with Adobe Systems Incorporated, a graphics software company, where he served as the Vice President and General Manager of North America. Before joining Adobe, he held both sales and sales management roles at General Parametrics Corporation, a presentation graphics hardware company, and at Texas Instruments, a semiconductor and computer hardware company. Brandon currently serves on the National Board of Trustees for Young Life, on the Board of Directors of the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, and is an elder for Central Peninsula Church in Foster City, California. John and his wife Nancy live in Atherton, California, and have three grown children. Please note, due to technical difficulties, the original recording begins after the first few seconds of Brandon's talk. Here's John Brandon. Texas Instruments. And uh, the funny thing is, I was a history major, and I'd never sold anything before, let alone anything in the technology realm, and so I was a bit overwhelmed. But I went to somebody that I considered a business mentor. What that meant is I'd worked for him one summer, because <laughs> I really didn't have mentors. And I said, hey, I'm going to be a salesperson, and I'm really excited about it. What, what advice do you have for me? And we were sitting at lunch, and he looked at me, and he said, well, I only have one piece of advice. And I'm thinking, oh, boy, I can hardly wait to get this. You know, it's going to be the key to my business success. And he said, so you're going to be a salesperson? I go, yep. He goes, one bit of advice for you. Learn to tell the truth. If you learn to tell the truth, you will absolutely stand out from all of your peers. <laughs> I go, really? And he goes, absolutely. And so we finished that lunch, and I went ahead and started my career. But the funny thing is, those words kept ringing around in my head. And so I decided that I was going to make that one of my lifetime goals that I was going to be a truth teller. And that's what we're going to talk about today, telling the truth. Now, I understand that there are very serious conversations we could have this morning about what is truth or the difference between absolute and relative truth. And I'm not naive to any of those issues, but that's not for this morning. That's for another time. For this morning, I just want to talk about the issue of being a truth teller, telling the truth in the marketplace, telling the truth every day at your job. Now, if you're like me, you may be here and a bit of a skeptic. That's my nature. I'm a bit of a skeptic. In fact, uh, I really identified with uh, Mark Twain's definition of an ethical man. Do you remember what that is? A Christian holding four aces, right? <laughs> But the funny thing about telling the truth is not all of us do it very much, 
But when it comes to us, we almost expect it. In fact, we really want it. And we get upset when people don't do it when it applies to us. Yet on the other hand, we tend to make it way more complicated than it really is. In fact, I've really come to the conclusion that really telling the truth should be a lot like the golden rule, where we should decide that we should tell to others what we personally would want to be told. And I have found that that's been really, really a good way to think about it. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to share three lessons that I've learned about telling the truth in uh, the last 27 years. And I'm going to share some war stories for you. And the reason why I'm going to share those stories is because I think they make a point that hopefully will be encouraging to you. Now, having said that, you need to know, I really consider myself still a pilgrim on this path. So not for a second do I want you to think, and, uh, and I hope I don't come off as this is the guy who's got it all figured out and all that sort of thing. No, I think I'm committed to something. I think I've made some progress, but I clearly view myself still as a pilgrim on the path. I still struggle talking to my wife uh, and trying to explain why I'm late for dinner, <laughs> right? I still would much rather tell her that I got the client or customer meeting at the last moment instead of I just mismanaged my afternoon and I have to finish some email, right? I know none of you have ever done that before, but uh, that sometimes happens to me. So three lessons I've learned along the way about telling the truth. First lesson, if you want to be a truth teller, consider the cost beforehand because the price tag might be high. Let me tell you how I learned this lesson. First part of my career, I was lucky enough to be with a company called Texas Instruments. That's when they had a computer division. One time, they were actually quite a big player in the tech industry, and I was lucky enough to be there. It was a highly ethical company. In fact, I don't know if they still do it, but in the years I was there, one day a year, every employee worldwide, uh, worldwide went through ethics training. And uh, it was not a bad place for a young sales guy like me to learn to do business. But I decided to leave there in the mid-80s and to join a startup. It was founded by a brilliant professor from UC Berkeley. And uh, I was lucky enough to be the first salesperson they hired, employee number 17. And um, we had great technology, which we turned into a fantastic product. And after two years, we were able to take the company public. Now, this is, remember, way before the bubble. So in those days, to take a company public, you really need to have a real product, real revenue, <laughs> real profits. I know a lot of that's changed. And sometimes when I share that with younger crowds, they go, oh, that's a big deal. But uh, some of you are my age. You remember when that was a big deal. Had some of the best venture money in the world behind it. And we were on a rocket. And I really felt like, I had uh, won a bit of the lottery, to be quite honest with you. 
And I thought, I am tasting the upside of the Silicon Valley. And you know what? I really liked it. I really liked it. The problem was that the CEO had a few personal habits with the way that he dealt with people that were pretty unpleasant. And one of them, to be quite honest with you, was a very nasty habit. And that nasty habit was that he would like to pit the management team against each other. And he did it in a particularly um, disappointing way, if you want to use that term, because he would normally pit the team against the person who wasn't in the room. So here it was on a Monday morning. We had our senior managers meeting. A lot of you have spent a lot of time in such meetings. Sitting at an oval uh, table, he was at the head. Every exec was around the table. And uh, he had decided to start off this particular meeting, basically making an accusation about the one senior manager that wasn't in the room. And he basically made an accusation that this guy had done something the previous week to intentionally damage the company. Well, it was one of those things that not only was it not true, it was so outrageous that people didn't even want to acknowledge it. And so you've probably been in those situations when people are really uncomfortable. You know what they do in business meetings when they're really uncomfortable? They all stare at their shoes. So pretty soon you have everybody at the table kind of staring at their shoes, just hoping that the, that the moment's going to pass by. But he decided that today was a day he didn't want it to pass by. And so he decided he was going to call on each one of us to see if we agreed with him. Now, as luck would have it, I was sitting to his immediate right, but he started on his left. And he literally went around, each one of the people on the table looked him in the eye and basically said, this is what I believe, do you agree with me? And I got to sit there and watch every senior exec crumble under the pressure of the CEO. So um, there I am sitting going, you know, my, guess what, I'm, I'm sitting in the, in, the, in the last seat, what am I going to say? And guess what words came back to my head, in my head? Be a truth teller. Tell the truth. And so I decided to do that. And it was finally my turn and he looked at me and he said, well, how about you, John? Do you agree with me and everyone else? <laughs> so being the sales guy that I am, what I try to do is I attempt a little humor, thinking that maybe I could manage the situation that way. Nobody was laughing. And so I swallowed hard and I looked him in the eye and I said, well, actually, if what you're really saying is this, if you really think he did that and intentionally to damage the company, I disagree. I said, actually, you need to know, I'm very familiar with the situation I was. I said, he wasn't part of it at all. In fact, ironically, it was one of the other groups that had done the thing that of one of the other execs around the table. I didn't say that. And I said, he had nothing to do with it. Um, I don't agree, and by the way, I'm personally really uncomfortable that we're talking about one of the senior managers that's not here in the room to defend himself. 
Well, now the room was really quiet. <laughs> now, I wish I could tell you at that moment, the CEO jumped up and said, finally, an honest man. I'm looking for my successor. I went all around the table. I found this guy. He'll be the next CEO of this company. That's what I was hoping. <laughs> it's not what happened. He kind of glared at me, changed the subject, finished the manager's meeting. We broke for the day. I went off. I had a bunch of work to do. I show up the next morning. My telephone rings. I pick it up. It's his admin. To this day, I don't know why she gave me a heads up, because she didn't particularly uh, like me. But she basically said, John, you need to know he started a search this morning to replace you. 90 days later, I'm out of the company. I've got my tail between the legs. I'm all chewed up. I'm trying to figure, Lord, what in the world are you doing in my life? Haven't you noticed we're wearing the same color jersey? I thought I was on your team. <laughs> and um, I am on the street looking for a job, wondering what just happened to me. And all those stock options that were in the money that I had been counting on and somehow thought I had something to do with were worth nothing to me. First lesson about telling the truth, consider the cost. The price tag might be high. Second lesson I've learned along the way, people are actually attracted to the truth. Now, some of you are saying, John, uh, you just told us a story that goes just opposite of this second lesson. And I understand that. I understand that. But the amazing thing has been that the, this other thing, this other lesson is absolutely true. People are desperate for the truth. In fact, you're probably aware there's a dirty little secret that's part of corporate America, which is many companies are committed to annual reviews, yet most managers won't tell the truth in the reviews. They won't tell the employee what's going on. Now, I'll spare you the details, but I left this little company with my tail between my legs, took the only job, really, that I could find with a little tiny software company that was trying to decide if they were going to go get in the application software business. That company happens to be called Adobe Systems. Now, all my friends thought I was brilliant and figured it all out and had picked you know, one of the rockets. I hadn't. I was just desperate for a job because I was married with two little kids trying to make a mortgage. While I was at Adobe, though, highly ethical company, just the opposite of the experience of the startup. But we were committed that we would write annual reviews for every employee. But the funniest thing would happen is even though we would train our managers, they didn't do a very good job about it. And, but I was developing a reputation that I'd actually tell employees the truth. And so I would find around review time that these employees that were, were in completely different parts of the organization, some of them I didn't even know, would somehow get on my calendar and walk in, sit down, and say, I'm desperate to know the truth. I got my review. I don't believe it. 
what's going on. For instance, why have I been here nine years and I've never been promoted? Why I'm getting this project? Some of them I had to look in the eye. I said, I'll tell you why. We view you as a brilliant engineer, but you're so difficult to deal, do business with. Nobody wants to be on your team, let alone let you lead a team. Go back and ask your boss, how are my people skills? Get some honest feedback. Now, after a great run at Adobe, and I was able to spend 10 wonderful years there, I decided in my early 40s that I wanted to become a CEO. It's a pretty common path in the Silicon Valley for guys like me. And I decided that that was really where the Lord was leading me. And so um, I got a phone call from probably the most powerful and influential venture capitalist in the world. And he said, John, I've got a really interesting proposition for you for one of our portfolio companies. Here's the deal. We really think that this is a company that's worth um, another round of investment. And he said, I'll personally go raise the money. And we and he said, I've got some blue chip investors, and they absolutely were blue chip. And he said, I'll go off and I'll personally raise this money at a valuation that's interesting. Once I've got that put together, I want you to leave Adobe, come be CEO, and we'll take this company public within the next year or two. And he said, um, uh, you know, that's the deal. What do you think? I went through a long process, decided, you know what, I'd really like to do that. And so, sure enough, he raised the money, called me up, said, John, you need to start because the new investors won't close the round until you start. They want to meet you. And so, sure enough, I did that. And I became a CEO for the first time. And um, I showed up in my first day of work and met my new team and we talked about everything and they said during day number one, they said, hey, listen, we have a board meeting in two days and it's going to be great because not only are we going to go through our business plan with the current investors, but all the new investors are going to be there because they want to hear from the entire senior management team before the round closes. I said, fantastic. So we spent the whole day number two on the job going through the presentations. These guys were good. They had all their stuff together. It was great. Day number three, we go into the board meeting. My new team stands up. They go through the presentations. They've got all the answers to every question. It could not have gone any better. It's in the boardroom of this venture capital firm. It's known as the nicest boardroom in all the Silicon Valley. At the very end, this very powerful um, VC who had personally recruited me and had raised the money said, hey, I've got one last thing. Calls in his admin. She rolls in a silver cart with fruit tarts on it and very expensive champagne. And says, he says, I would like to toast to the new CEO. And everybody stands up and toasts, and I'm thinking, this is great, you know? <laughs> I mean, they're all excited about the new CEO, and I'm the new CEO, and I'm thinking, man, why did I wait 10 years to do this? You know, this isn't bad. We, we toast the champagne. It's now 1 o'clock in the afternoon. It's time to go back to work. Don't worry, didn't we, we didn't drink that much champagne. Go back to work. And again, I don't even know why I did this. End of the day, though, I called all the execs back in. 
sat him down at a table in my office and I said, hey, listen, I thought you guys did a really good job today. I'm really proud of you. Let's go over a few of the numbers. I want to find out what, I just want to go over the risks one more time and uh, uh, then we can go home. And the room got quiet. I looked around and uh, one of them said, you didn't read Karen's email, did you? I, I said, uh, no, I don't even know who Karen is. Who's Karen? Well, it turns out Karen was the corporate controller who had been out on maternity leave, who had come back my first day. I hadn't even met her yet. Remember, this is only the end of day number three. And they took the printed out email and they slid it across the table to me. And essentially, I'll cut through the details, but it basically is saying that the numbers we had just raised our money on were bogus. And I said, does this mean what I think it means? And uh, one of the co-founders who was a CFO said, well, yeah, but if you know, if we do this and this and the stars align and this and that and blah, 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 and all this happens, then we might hit these numbers, right? And uh, I said, guys, I got a big problem with this. And one of the other co-founders looked at me and said, you really don't get it, do you? If you let them know these numbers are wrong, we won't get this next round. We're living on a bridge loan. It's going to run out in less than 30 days. We're going to go lay off. Actually, he said, you're going to go lay off every employee in the company. I looked at him and I said, well, you know what? Actually, I do get it. And later, we're going to go talk about security fraud. But right now, you need to know we are not going to take these people's money. We're not actually going to take anybody's money, let alone these guys' money, based on things we know not to be true. He said, man, what are you going to do? I said, well, right now, I'm going to go home because i got a headache. <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't the champagne, by the way. And I got up, and I wandered down to my car, and I drove home, and all I could think of is, how was I going to tell my wife that I left a great career at Adobe for a place that's going to crater after three days? I met with her. I talked to her. She was very encouraging. She said, hey, maybe Adobe will take you back, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, I didn't sleep very well that night. That next morning at 7.30, I was on the phone. I called the lead venture capitalist. I said, hey, I just went over the numbers. Contrary to what you heard at the board meeting, they're not right. There's enormous risk in them. Uh, and I said, I wanted to let you know because I said, I know Monday the round's supposed to close. We need to, we need to be up front. Needless to say, he was quite angry. In fact, the technical term for it is he was pissed. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I need you to call all the rest of the investors, especially the new lead investor in this round. He was a CEO in New York. I called him. If the first guy was pissed, this guy was really pissed. <laughs> and that's how my morning went. And then I finally got to the last investor. And she picked up the phone, and she said, hi, John, how are you? I said, well, actually, I've had better days. And uh, she said, you're calling about the numbers, aren't you? 
I said, uh, well, yeah, actually I am. Who's already called you from the board? She said, oh, no one. I said, how did you know that I was calling about the numbers? She said, they're squishy, aren't they? I said, yeah. She said, oh, we did our due diligence. We knew they were squishy. We just wanted to find out how long it was going to take you to find out how squishy they were and when you were going to tell us. Day number four, I learned a little bit about being a CEO. Now, guys, I'll spare you the rest of the story, but amazingly, we closed the round at the valuation, took the company forward, and we were able to merge it with another company that we took public. It's now since sold itself again. But um, the amazing thing is through a very rough, rough set of circumstances, I had a set of investors where I found out we're really actually very attracted to the truth. In fact, after I took my break, and yes, I did go work at a Young Life camp, um, and I was ready to come back into the marketplace, every one of those investors opened their portfolio to me. Why? Because people are actually attracted to the truth, because they're finding it too rare these days. Third and final lesson. It's a lot easier to tell the truth if you know the author of the truth. See, I don't know about you guys, but I'm just not that good. I just find that even though I've got some interesting war stories, I still struggle all the time. I still, I'm dead serious, I still struggle about wanting to make up excuses when I'm late for dinner or I've not called somebody back, or I've not gotten something done that I've committed to. And I've found my only hope comes out of my relationship with Jesus. It's the only hope. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. That's what he said. And I've really decided that I'm going to take him at his word, and I've found that's true. I have found that no matter what the circumstances, out of my relationship with him, I somehow am able to step up to this issue of being a truth teller. And that would be my message of hope to you guys. If you're going to live in the marketplace, if that's where the Lord has placed you, you're going to get challenged about issues of telling the truth every day of your existence. If you think you can do it on your own, if you think people are going to just step up because they're basically good and they have good intentions, you're going to be disappointed. But if you actually realize that there is hope in a relationship with Jesus, there is true hope. Three lessons of telling the truth. The first one is, if you're serious about being a truth teller, consider the cost, because the price tag might be high. The second one is, people are actually attracted to the truth. 
The third is, it's a lot easier to tell the truth if you know the author of the truth. Now let's stop at this point. We've got about um, 10 or 12 minutes. Are there some questions about that? Did those stories stir some issues that you'd love to ask about? Why don't we make the most of the next 10 or 12 minutes? I'd love to have a little Q&A, and then, and then Kent will come back up and wrap it up. Any questions about that? Now, come on, there's got to be some questions, guys. I basically gave the same talk at Sloan yesterday. The business students had great questions. So, and to be honest with you, most of them know nothing. So, uh, so I can't believe that guys and gals that have been in the marketplace for a while don't have questions. Yeah. I have a question about relating with other people in the business world, particularly in finance. You know, we've been said that there's honor among thieves. Didn't you find yourself alienated from just about everybody else in the industry? Um, so did you guys hear the question? The question is um, that there, there's this concern about honor among thieves, and by doing what we did, were we um, alienated by about everybody else in the industry? No, the answer is no, actually. In fact, it goes back to this point where it really is. I mean, telling the truth is an amazing thing. People, even if they don't do it themselves, they really still want it to be told to them, and they almost expect it. And so, in fact, I have seen managers that just go haywire if they find out one of their subordinates has misrepresented something to them, yet I have been in meetings when they've lied to customers, they've lied to their peers, they've lied to their boss, and it's almost like they don't think anything about that, but they really wanted this uh, you know, they wanted to apply to them themselves. So no, I, we, that situation was in that we weren't ostracized. We, in fact, um, you know, the funny thing about the Silicon Valley, you know, there's a lot of big companies there. It's made a huge impact on the world economy. It's a very small place. And uh, you develop a reputation early. In fact, you can probably ask me about any senior exec at any major company, I can tell you what their reputation is in the Valley. And I can also tell you their uniform number, but that's all another thing. <laughs> yeah, question over here. About 10 years ago, Chuck Paulson spoke to the Harvard Business School and said that you can't teach ethics in the absence of the truth, of the author of the truth. Um, how, do you teach, how do you teach this? So did everybody hear? The question is in the in the uh, absence of of an agreement about what's true. You know, can you teach ethics? How do you lead salespeople? So actually, this one's uh, this one is more simple than you think. Leading salespeople are like leading kids. What you do is you model for them. More is caught than taught. I have found that if you create an environment from the top that basically expects truth-telling, expects integrity, inspects the highest level of ethics from the top, people will fall 
in behind it. In fact, many times it's fear of what the superiors in the organization are going to do that causes all this goofy behavior down below. So I have decided, and I've done this at every company I've had the privilege of being a, a, a senior exec at, is I've got something that's called JB's 10 Rules of Success. And I give it at every sales meeting. And one of the things that I tell my sales guys, in fact, you can ask my sales guys, they can tell you exactly what they are. In fact, some of the guys in Asia carry it on a tag on their badge. And one of the things is the highest level of ethics is expected. When in doubt, ask. And we don't let them be an island. So if they get in situations that they're in over their head, and by the way, especially if you're involved in some international business, there will be situations that are easily, easily talked about as just the cultural norm. Most of that's baloney, by the way. It's just a different kind of rationale. Um, so all of Apple's business in Asia Pacific, Latin America, I use those two examples because there are countries in those two parts of the world that most people use as their examples. We do our business straight up, just like we do in the US, the fastest growing businesses we've got. I really believe it's about modeling. Another question, yeah. Uh, going back to that first piece of advice you received, uh, yeah. two part question. First part is, were you a Christian at the time? And if not, at what point did that piece of advice really sink in? So, uh, did you everybody hear that? The, for that first piece of advice, was I a Christian at the time? And if not, when did that really sink in? So the answer is, yes, I was a Christian, and so was this mentor. And so there was already a fundamental agreement on, on truth and the importance of being a truth teller. And so um, that was already the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Question here. Uh, in your position as CEO, um, how did you manage and what were the results of those people who encouraged you to, to deceive the investors, particularly the co-founders? Uh, so the question is, as CEO, you know, people always want to know what happened to those people. Um, I let them all go. So I really believe you cannot, absolutely not, have senior leadership in a company that you don't trust their ethics. You can't tolerate it, guys. You just cannot tolerate it. And, um, and so over a period of time, all the execs that were in on that were let go, uh, some sooner than later. Um, it was really hard particularly where two of them were truly the co-founders of the company. And so it was the classic case of the outside manager coming in and asking founders to leave. Uh, by the way, two of my investors, they, by the way, those founders were not happy with me. They would not be a personal reference for me. Uh, um, what they don't understand, it's really not important, but I, it's worth making the point here today, is they felt I dealt harshly with them. They don't know that two of the senior investors wanted me to fire them that day. I chose not to do that. Um, both wanted me to, the, both of these guys wanted me to fire them with cause. Uh, 
Um, I dealt more gently with them than they understand. They don't think I dealt gently enough with them. Yeah, question back here. Yeah, any advice on uh, talking to ignorant customers? Uh, puts you at an immediate competitive disadvantage and it gives you talking down. So this is the question about how to talk to quote unquote ignorant customers. And um, well, so I talk to customers a lot. Some much smarter than me, some not as smart. Um, I normally find that when dealing with customers, it's worth asking a few questions to really find out where they're coming from and what's important to them. I find most salespeople make a huge mistake because they make assumptions that they've never validated. And so a lot of times they find out later that they were acting on some things that weren't fundamentally true. Let me give you a perfect example. People ask us all the time, how do we compete in the cutthroat PC business when everybody builds PCs and price them about 25% cheaper than you can buy a Macintosh, right? That's what everybody, you know, people ask us all the time. And their assumption is, isn't the whole industry just going to go to Dell, right? That's, that's the assumption, right? And if you talk to some business analysts, they think that way. Um, Part of it is because you're making a huge mistake if you feel like most customers think that price is the most important factor. I find that price will be one of the issues. Rarely is it the most important factor. There's a whole bunch of other issues. So by asking what the customer really understands or what's important to them, and sometimes you have to do some education, to be honest with you, you're able to deal with in a way where you shouldn't be viewed as talking down to them. You really are viewed as somebody that's actually acting as a consultant to them that they make a better decision. Now, I happen to think that's an art. I think that's a learned skill. But um, I do. Th that's how I would approach that. I think we have time for one more. Yeah. Uh, talk about what you do back at home to kind of reinforce what you do in your business life. And with your kids, you've got kids now that are in college, but all of us and many of us in the room have kids at all different ages. And can you talk for a minute about how maybe it was modeled in your home growing up, because I bet it was, and then how telling the truth, you, you deal with it with your kids and try to inspire your family? So that's a great question. The question is, what do we do at home that goes along, particularly with our kids, um, so we model that that lines up with what I do in the business world. So let me say a couple things. Uh, and this is, this is really a good advice that I should have already mentioned. First thing is, do not walk this path alone. I have decided that, I j that in fact, years ago, I decided that my best chance of success at being a truth teller and living a life of integrity was to share my life with a handful of guys. Now, I'm so screwed up, I actually have two accountability groups. I really do. And one of them are in the marketplace with me in various levels. Another one, I actually sit on the elder board of our church, and it's basically those group of guys. There is no major decision or anything that happens in my life that I don't share with those guys. They, by the way, those two group of guys have told me the most difficult things I've ever heard about myself. 
but we've made a covenant with each other that we're, we love each other enough to tell each other the truth. So if I'm screwed up, odds are great they're going to tell me. And I've just made that part of a decision grid where every major decision, I run it through those guys. They always know when I'm traveling, when I'm speaking, what issues are in my life. Sometimes we travel together. I've taken them to business schools on an ethics panel and some other things. And so I want to make sure you know a key part of this is I have a very strong support system. Second thing, I'm married way over my head, way over my head. And uh, I am so fortunate with the wife that I have. And um, she is very bright. She, I don't think genetically she knows how to tell a lie. Now, obviously, that's an exaggeration, but you get the point. Um, she has modeled a lot for me. She, I grew up in a home with Christian parents. She grew up in a home with non-Christian parents. There was much better modeling in her home about healthy relationships than my home. But I was smart enough to listen when I got married. And so she's been the one that I would say has been the most effective parent in our marriage. Now, we talk about this with our kids all of the time. And we've worked through all the classic things you work through with a parent when you've got a 22-year-old, a 19-year-old, and an almost 16-year-old. We have had episodes when our kids have done things that are colossal screw-ups. We, and I can tell this story because she wouldn't mind, we have had the episode when we went off to the all-church retreat for the weekend and our oldest daughter, who was a senior in high school, decided to turn our house into a tavern for 48 hours. <laughs> This is a house that's really known where all the Young Life clubs are and all of that. The police got to show up, right? And we got to deal with that when we came home. We also got to deal with her when we said, you know what? You don't get to live a life where your public and private life are two different things. You need to go talk to the people that are important to you and let them know what you just did. That was very painful for her. As an 18-year-old girl, she was scared to death. But you know what? She learned the lesson that there needs to be fidelity between your private life and your public life. By the way, anybody who says that's not a big deal for any kind of leader, whether it's an elected office or not, has got it wrong. Just need to know that. And so, hey, that was hard. Guys, it chokes me up thinking about it. It was really hard. Great thing about that, her younger brother and younger sister got to watch. You know, I'm the youngest of seven. The best lessons I've ever learned were the screw-ups of my older siblings. 
Hey guys, we're done. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a delight. That was John Brandon speaking at a Marketplace Network forum in Boston. For more information, visit our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkPodcast.